0: Welcome to the Show Me the Evidence podcast, where our goal is to replace the widespread addiction to expert opinions with the demand for evidence.
1: Please keep in mind that Show Me the Evidence is only a show and cannot provide medical recommendations.
0: Show Me the Evidence is sponsored by Dr. Evidence and The Cure. Visit ShowMeTheEvidence.com to see videos and podcasts on the differences between opinions and evidence.
2: There's a difference between believing and knowing.
1: It was the wrong diagnosis.
2: What does the evidence tell us? Why do we need evidence-based healthcare? Everyone needs a flu vaccine. Never take a flu shot. It's a scam.
0: A diagnosis that could have cost her her life. My name is Nathan Edmondson, and I'm here with the, uh, the rest of the Show Me the Evidence team.
1: My name is Aaron Davis.
2: And I am Dr. Todd Feynman. Dr. Todd?
1: Yes, and today we have an awesome guest lined up. Uh,
2: Dr. Rosenbach is joining us.
0: <laughs> Dr. Rosenbach is a board-certified dermatologist in Los Angeles who is an associate clinical professor of dermatology at the USC School of Medicine. His research interests include lasers and their effect on the skin a topic on which he has published numerous medical journals, journal articles, and given multiple lectures at medical conferences.
2: Let me add that Dr. Rosenbach was named by Los Angeles Magazine as one of the Southern California super doctors, woo. and the Hollywood Reporter named him Hollywood's top doctors. Wow,
0: that's pretty impressive. One of Hollywood's top doctors. <laughs> Welcome Dr. Rosenbach.
3: It's good to be here and uh, I don't take the, the Hollywood Reporter part too seriously although it's nice to make the list.
2: Yeah, that's, that's up there with uh, being board certified. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot easier.
1: <laughs> so yeah, we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us because we know you're really busy. You're studying for a big exam coming up, right?
3: Well, every 10 years in dermatology at least uh, the powers that be make you take an exam called the recertification exam and you got to power up the brain cells and study for about a year beforehand to learn all about diseases that happen in Africa that you'll never see. (laughs) So for maybe Ebola.
1: So is is that just brushing up on things you already knew and then learning the new studies that came out in the last few years? Or what what exactly is the material?
3: They ask, they have a written test and it's about recent medical research, I'd say, and topics that they find interesting. Uh, They post the questions online, so you have to do a lot of research to find the answers and uh, it's also, uh, there's a second test where you look at photos of patients and you try to guess the diagnosis, which there isn't really a great way to prepare for other than get photos of every disease that they want you to learn, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is, you know, it takes, that takes hundreds
2: of hours. So given this is a show about evidence, yeah. tell us and the audience the questions that they ask you. Is it actually based on data evidence? Like give an example of a question that they ask you and, and tell us your perspective on whether or not the answers that they expect you to give are actually based on proof, evidence. Well,
3: the last time I did this, I'll, I'll tell you that I couldn't find any of the answers in, in a textbook. Hmm. And the only place I found the answers weren't, were in medical journal articles. So it is based on evidence. Okay. Sometimes there will be a second article that has contradictory evidence. Ooh. So that does happen.
2: And how do how does anybody resolve that? How does anybody resolve that if there's two answers to one question? Um, you call up and you complain, and somebody in Chicago laughs at you and hangs up. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about same thing with the photos? I assume if there's, is it possible that you could have more than one diagnosis based on one photo? Is it subjective at all, or is it would everybody agree that is the final diagnosis?
3: you know, that remains to be seen because that's a new part of the exam and I'm not taking it for six months. Okay. So I wonder if there are going to be p- questions like that where they say, guess the diagnosis and something else could fit in, but maybe it's classic for one disease and just happens once in a while in another disease. I don't know yet. We'll see you. that, you know, we'll, we'll yeah. find that one out yeah, in we'll March. To, we'll
2: interview you again after the boards. So let's- Only say, if I pass. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, then we won't call you. Um, what, tell, so tell us, Get into your background and, and the type of practice that you have. What, what, name five of the most common diseases that you treat in terms of skin diseases, and describe some of the cosmetic procedures that you do.
3: Uh, the five most common diseases, I would say acne, um, different kinds of eczema, skin cancer, psoriasis, and all sorts of problems with dry skin. Hmm. Those are probably the most common conditions. If it's dry, you
2: just wet it, right? No, no it takes a little more than that. <laughs> Take a bath. You, really want,
3: you really want to go into that?
2: Yeah, no, that, I'll hold that one. Yeah, what was no, the second I, part I, of your question? And the other, the other one was, what are the, some of the cosmetic procedures that you do?
3: Well, I'd, uh, I do what a lot of dermatologists do, a lot of laser procedures.
2: Um, to treat what?
3: A variety of discolorations and and, and uh, things that could happen, mostly on the face, because that's where people are interested in, right. in uh, making you know, improve. If you have, if you have a scar on your elbow, it's not a big, as big of a deal as a scar on your face. Right. So we end up doing a lot of things on the face. Lasers uh, can treat indented scars, they can treat raised scars, different lasers for different kinds of scars. Um, unwanted hair is a big one. Uh, there's a condition called melasma where you get uh, brown discoloration on the uh, upper cheeks. Yeah. Right. Okay. You're pointing, yeah. but it's not going to work on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have yeah. brown spots and, uh, and what else? Um, wrinkles, wrinkles. Absolutely. There's a laser that, you know, so yeah. all the sorts of things that happen on people's faces as they age, sunspots, blood vessels.
2: What other cosmetic, any other injections, other stuff? What else? Well, that's got?
3: popular too. Dermatologists have, uh, uh I, I can brag that we've pretty much, uh, published most of the information on f- what we call fillers. Hmm. which are things that we inject into the skin to help with things varying from scars to wrinkles or even volume loss.
2: What are those drugs called?
3: Uh, The big one is they're hyaluronic hyaluronic fillers, and uh, that's a technical name for a sugar protein molecule that you already have in your skin. Hmm. And what's nice is somebody figured out how to put it into a tube and we can inject it back where you've lost it. Hmm. Or maybe where you have an indentation, raise up the indentation.
2: Hmm. Sugar molecules, tasty. Sugar- More protein, oh. glycoproteins. Wow, and what? Okay, and then of course Botox. You must do Botox. That's the yes. rage. Yes,
3: uh, Botox and is uh, a lot of people call it botulinum now because there's another company that makes it, but the brand name Botox is pretty well known. And yeah, dermatologists do a lot of that, and I do a lot of that. Does
0: uh, is Vanity
3: pushing the science forward? You know, that's kind of deep. I can't tell you how people come to the ideas that they come to. I know this, I know that the way Botox first got going is uh, there are some dermatologists, and uh, there's a dermatologist in Vancouver, his wife is, uh, is an ophthalmologist, their, their last name is Carruthers, and I believe that uh, about 15 years ago, they realized that you can use Botox, well, ophthalmologists were using it for people who squinted involuntarily, and they just kept squinting and squinting. And finally, this brilliant stroke came up and said, wait a minute, what about wrinkles over there? Yeah. And that's when, that's when it started to get used. And they were nice enough to teach people in, in dermatology how to do it. And then the research got you know, more refined. And, and isn't a lot it of yet, people with, even with
0: Botox, isn't that used for other things now?
3: It's used to treat migraine headaches. Um, uh, different fields of medicine use it for all, uh, all sorts of things. I've heard the urologists use it for problems with the bladder. Uh, uh, Otolaryngologists, ear, nose, and throat specialists, they use it for vocal cord problems. There are a bunch of reasons that people in medicine in general use Botox and, and, and the other brand, to so support.
2: Let's, 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 get, let's get some evidence into this mm-hmm. conversation. So lasers, how many dermatologists or doctors in Los Angeles do you think use lasers to treat the problems you described?
3: If I had to guess, I would think that the number of lasers in the hands of board certified dermatologists is way less than half of the number of lasers in Los Angeles.
2: So you're saying that over half of the doctors who use lasers are not board certified dermatologists. Yeah. And is there a difference in the outcomes that a patient would get based on the level of training that a dermatologist or a doctor has with lasers?
3: You know, I don't know, I don't know a way to prove it with a medical study, but I, uh, I certainly know that if you have, certain issues that come up board certified dermatologists, or even maybe plastic surgeons are probably used to treating those sorts of issues. So, so is. for example, if I do a laser procedure on somebody and they get some pimples the next day, I would know that those pimples are more about an, uh, a, a sensitivity type of reaction rather than true acne. And I wouldn't give an acne medicine. Why? Cause board certified dermatologists would recognize that. Hmm. I think that if you, you know, if you got, if you got a, uh, if you're running a laser center, Maybe you don't know all the dermatology. And if there's an issue that comes up, like a sudden onset eruption or an allergic reaction from some cream you put on, maybe you wouldn't be as familiar uh, in terms of what to do. And you wouldn't be able to help that person afterwards.
2: Are there studies on lasers, you know, effic- you know effectiveness, safety studies on lasers? Do they do studies or is it mostly anecdotal? no, no. Are no re-
3: there are studies. The problem with the studies mostly is that I would, if I had to guess, I'd say less than a quarter of them have more than 25 patients.
2: But it's it's. But there are good studies. There, yes, there are very and, good studies, right.
3: blinded, uh, uh, blinded uh, uh, clinical trials, and uh, there's some very good research. Do, I mean, there. There's does, also some do, some poor research do too.
2: Those studies, that evidence about lasers, do you think it would? Does it help a doctor who does lasers? pick the right laser settings, the right laser machine? You know, does it help? Does that evidence help doctors who do lasers be more effective at providing laser treatment?
3: I don't know what all the other doctors do. I certainly hope so. In my case, I I read the research, and even though, you know, I did a laser fellowship and I teach this stuff, sometimes it gets confusing. And I speak to the manufacturers and it can become more confusing. So I think it's a good idea to stay with the medical research and see what's been published I was saying that sometimes you have you have a medical journal articles that are less Than what you want Published in medical journals.
2: What does that mean? I mean, what what are you saying that the the I think that some studies are poorly designed?
3: I think that some people Sometimes we see a brilliant result reported very well and then everybody starts doing that sort of treatment and realizes, wait, this isn't working. So what happened? Did the doctor do the study incorrectly? Did they report it incorrectly? Or is there something more nefarious going on?
0: Is that pretty common?
3: Yeah. Hmm.
1: Is that just they didn't follow patients for a long enough time? Or they didn't follow enough patients?
3: I think there are a number of different reasons. But you could say to yourself, when you see groundbreaking research, and everybody jumps in to buy that laser. And then a year and a half later, you find out that the research was in Invalid that the people don't get better as described. You know, wh- what could be the reason for that? Is this, What's the, is the study done? That? Is well, how the, does so how do know, some this? people would say? Well, maybe those doctors just wanted to publish on this, and it, you know that sort of thing. And by the time somebody figures it out two years later, they've moved on.
2: Hmm. So let's get into some of the medical, the so-called medical non cosmetic dermatology problems you see, i.e. psoriasis. So how do you, as a dermatologist who sees a psoriasis patient, make decisions about treatment? What do you rely on? Do you rely on books, guidelines, seminars, talking to other dermatologists, reading clinical trials? What do you rely on to figure out what's the most effective treatment for that patient that's in your office that has that unique psoriasis condition? It's difficult because I try to
3: rely on evidence-based medicine. I know, let's say a common medication that we use is methotrexate. I know what the evidence is for a lot of the traditional uses of methotrexate, but sometimes what if a person is not the type of person that was in that original research trial, maybe they excluded diabetics and I have a diabetic, I have to make a common sense decision. Maybe there's a medication that takes uh, injecting yourself and the person's afraid of needles. So even though that's the best treatment for that person, I can't use that medication. Um, are there really good trials comparing one medication to another? No. Is it fair to compare a new medication to some older medication that was researched in 1984? Hmm. I don't know. Um, in general, unless I see a dramatic change from something new to something old, if it's incremental and it doesn't seem that impressive, I wait about a year or two hmm. to start using it because I'm afraid of the possible consequences of the very rare sort of. Uh, Side effect right. that that, that, shows that we up. don't right. know about that hasn't been discovered yet, you know um, I just keep thinking about in the back of my mind I'm always thinking about a woman using hormonal replacement therapy for what 30 years before anybody you know Millions of women before anybody figured out something was going on With, with uh, you know relationship cancer. to breast cancer, yeah. right? I mean, that's millions of women. So, right, you know we're looking at studies with two or three hundred people hopefully and That's not enough to know something's better than something else. So right. I kind of sort of watch what's going on for about a year, maybe two years, go to the conferences, and if I, if I don't hear negativity, then I feel comfortable making the move. But unless something is dramatically better than something else, I usually won't start try the new medication.
2: So you, you're, what you're saying is that you, when you have a psoriasis patient, you tend to start with the older, more traditional drugs first, because there's no long-term safety data on the new drugs and you feel more comfortable with the older drugs well, because you, there's more experience, more data on long-term safety. And given that the efficacy is not that much different between the new and old drugs, you, go, you lean towards safety.
3: Well, I will say this, there has been a sea change, if you will, on some new kinds of medicines to treat psoriasis. So that's probably a bad example, because that is one place that we all made the jump, right. because the medications seem to be much <clears throat> better All these biologics, exactly. the biologics exactly. that
2: are coming out. And, and those, mm-hmm. you've heard that those new biologic drugs are impressive in terms of treating the psoriasis, plaquing, and all the skin problems. Well, it's not like I've
3: heard that there are very well-written studies on right. these things. You've yeah. seen, so
2: you're looking at those studies and seeing impre- impressive results and right. convincing you.
3: But again, Study, you know, you have a TNF alpha blocker and that's a, that's a, you know, a molecule that's somewhere buried in the immune system right. that seems to, if you block it, it seems to really help psoriasis. Well, what's the long-term effects? Can there be lymphoma? Can you reactivate right. tuberculosis? You know, how does it interact with other med- medications? We don't really know. But the tri- some of the traditional medications have other side effects. So is there any right answer? It's kind of hard to say. You know, I, I try to use common sense because there isn't a good comparison study between some of the new and some of the old.
1: So there's a ton of drug ads that are on TV, on the internet, but they always tell you at the end to ask your doctor. So what if a patient came in and they were like, you know, I saw this new drug on TV and it said to ask you, and what if they wanted to try this new drug? What is your kind of ethical standpoint with, there's not enough evidence, you would always lean towards the older drug, but this person wants a newer drug? If the newer
3: drug is much better than the older drug, I will go to the newer drug. If it's a little bit better than the older drug, I say, let's wait till the other guinea pigs go through their <laughs> use. I mean, that's, right. let, 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 let there be a million guinea pigs. And I bring up the example about hormone replacement therapy. And you've learned that mainly at conferences? Yeah, because then you go to a conference about some medication, you find out, oh, this medicine's been giving people lymphoma, and then you're, you're thinking, wow, I'm glad I didn't give that one. So, you know, hmm. there are surprises with a lot of medications. Even in the cosmetic realm, right. if there's a new filler, and it's better than the old filler, right? but the old filler's been used a million times. The new filler has a study based on 42 people in New York City. I'm staying with the old filler if there's a 5% difference. If there's a 50% difference or an 80% difference, maybe. So your advice to any
2: patient seeing a dermatologist being treated for any disease, Mm -hmm. i.e. psoriasis, that when a doctor recommends a drug, especially a new one, they should be saying to the doctor, how much more effective? Is this new drug compared to the old drug? And do you have any long-term safety outcome on this new drug? Is that a, is that, are those two good questions? That yeah, I think they're reasonable. Yeah. Let's talk about skin cancer. Okay. Tell me, is there any chance that five patients with the exact type of skin cancer, melanoma stage two or squamous cell, they have all, the, they, all five patients have the exact same diagnosis of the skin cancer. if they went to five different dermatologists would they get five different recommendations or would every dermatologist anywhere recommend the same exact treatment
3: i would hate to use the word every but when it comes to skin cancer there are very established guidelines and there have been some there are very large studies showing that taking melanoma for example depending on how deep it is most people will do the same sort of excision so if it's pretty shallow, maybe you take a quarter of an inch from the border. If it's a little bit deeper, maybe you take an inch from the border. But these are guidelines that are in that are in uh, not only in medical textbooks, but it, uh, there's a society the name I can't remember that a cancer, you know, some sort of society that that has this on online.
2: Who makes the guidelines?
3: There is an Academic Cancer Guideline Society.
2: And how does the average dermatologist and their patient know whether or not to trust that guideline? How do they know that guideline is valid up to date? It's based on all the best evidence they're using and, and it's been updated. There's no errors in it. No misrepresentate, you know, misrepresentation. I think they or- just take
3: the guidelines as the word of God. I mean, I you know, you think that if there are eight to 10 doctors, well-versed in melanoma and they, re- and they review the research that they're going to do a pretty good job. But you're right. I mean, I don't think everybody goes through the original research and says, "I'll take a half an inch. I'll take a quarter of an inch." You go by what this sort of small group of experts recommend.
2: So, so for localized skin cancers, whether squamous cell or melanoma, the average they're very different by the way. Squamous cell, right, right, but the skin cancer localized. We're not talking about advanced, metastatic yet. But for the early stage of skin cancer the average dermatologist will rely on a guideline that they're hoping has been created by the top experts and they used all the great evidence and there's no errors in that guideline. Yeah. Is it, so the average dermatologist treating that type of skin cancer is not actually looking at the evidence himself, he's actually looking at a guideline that's been created by somebody else, correct? I would say
3: for that sort of thing, no. Right, they Uh, they rely on the guidelines. By and large, it would surprise me if any of my colleagues went to the original studies that led to these guidelines.
2: Right, they rely on the guidelines from the experts. What about advanced skin cancers that are stage three, stage four, they're metastatic, they're not localized anymore. I have to assume there's more than, if five patients with the exact same diagnosis of advanced or metastatic skin cancer come in, they go to five different dermatologists, will they possibly get more than one opinion?
3: Yes, it's possible. And I'll give you an example. Some of these biologics cause problems that people can't tolerate. For instance, there's one that, make, that, that makes you have a metallic taste in your mouth.
2: Well, now you're talking about a different profile, but I'm saying if five patients with the same risks and same mm-hmm. side effect profiles, if they all are the same and they go to five different dermatologists, is it possible that the dermatologists? Dermato- I mean, the oncology, is yeah. it possible that the oncologist treating those skin cancers will make a recommendation based on their personal experience, based on the guidelines that they've read, or based on the insurance plans that are associated, based on where they live, is it possible that other factors will influence them besides the actual data, the evidence?
3: I would say I'd be surprised if it wasn't possible. I'd say right. it's probable.
2: Do you think there's evidence proving that some of the treatments for advanced skin cancers have higher survival than other treatments? That there's actually considered best treatments out there for in terms of maximizing survival?
3: You know, it's it's kind of hard to say. I mean, there. What if a medication that's that's used for treating advanced melanoma gives you know had an extra thirteen months of prolonged right. life, and there's an older medication that had twelve months, but the new medication makes you want to pull your hair out and punch yourself in the face? Right. There's so many considerations. Uh, I would think that most oncologists are smart enough to say if this medication has fewer side effects and a prolonged life, that it's good. You know, right. so. I would be surprised if that, if that wasn't the case. But then again, maybe some insurance companies won't pay for this expensive medication right. unless an older medication is used first. And that happens to me a lot when I treat, when I treat conditions.
2: So give, me exa- so give us examples of where insurance companies will force you to order, not either you or a colleague, will, mm. an insurance plan will force you to order an inferior treatment.
3: Uh, I can just tell you that it's happened to me on multiple occasions. It happens to every doctor where you want to use treatment A but insurance companies force you to tr- use treatment B.
2: Right, even though the evidence shows treatment A is the more effective or the, the more correct therapy for that patient.
3: For fungus on the toenails, that's a really, that's a really hard thing to treat. So right. there are these new medications that are safer than the old medications. Right. But until recently, and even sometimes now, I'll get insurance companies that refuse it.
2: And what do you do? What if an insurance Tell the person. Uh,
3: Go complain to your insurance. They, right. Insurance companies know that fungus is not gonna kill anyone in their toenails. Right. So they, they make the decision and the patients have to fight it out with their insurance company. Is,
2: is it possible, have you ever seen or do you think it's possible that you could reverse an insurance denial by showing them evidence? That Absolutely, yes,
3: yes you, can, you can do that. Explain so that. So insurance companies, they're not just all about no, no, no. You can use evidence to convince them why you'd rather use a more expensive medication or a newer medication. And they will say yes, quite often.
2: Right. So evidence is that linchpin, that thing that might, that, that material information that will reverse a denial and right. get you a more effective treatment.
3: Yes. Here's, here's one, one problem though. You know, if a doctor has to do that 42 times a day, it becomes very onerous on the doctor right. and his practice to be able to do it.
2: Right. But if, the pay, if there was a place where the, you could send the patient to go get the evidence and print it out and take it to their insurance plan on their own, that would, that would make it doable, right?
3: I think you got a business idea. Yeah.
2: Hmm.
3: That is big. Yeah. That's a great idea.
2: That, that's the cure. I mean, that's what the, you're doing. Yeah, we did. You're things. helping
3: people get met more. Yeah,
2: we've we've really that. That's what page, our clients used to do. They used to wow. use the evidence of reverse of denial. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Evidence rules the day.
0: I hear conflicting things about sunscreen all the time.
3: Great, great example. The American Academy of Dermatology has a very strong position on this. Sunscreen is helpful in preventing skin cancer. It is helpful. That's proven. There's evidence on that. But there are certain ingredients in sunscreen that might cause cancer. Ooh. Now here's the thing that you don't hear about, you know, you see it on, I'm, I'm making this up but maybe you have your favorite website where you go for your news. I'm not going to give a name out cause I don't want to get in trouble, but I find that they try to capture viewers by scaring them. This is an example of that because I would say that effective use of sunscreen dramatically reduces the number of skin cancer based on the evidence. Now you might say, what about, what about this little ingredient that could cause cancer? Well, maybe sunscreen prevents cancer in one out of two people, but sunscreen causes cancer in one out of two million people. So that's the sort of thing where you hear con- uh, conflicting information. But uh, to go on record, I want to just talk about sunscreen. Sunscreen is good, very important to use, but really the most important thing is to wear a big hat with a rim and wear a shirt that covers your neck and chest because sunscreen isn't that good. If I could give people advice out there listening to this, the most important thing I could say is if you're gonna go for three hours in the sun on a Saturday, it's way better to go from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. than it is to go from two to five.
0: What about our needs for, you know, just the exposure, getting our vitamin D?
3: American Academy of Dermatology is is, uh, very clear about this. If you're short on vitamin D, it's better to take a supplement than to lay out in the sun.
2: Is there really evidence that sunscreens prevent cancer? Skin cancer. Are you know there what? really studies on that? Did they actually compare patients who use sunscreen to patients who don't use sunscreen and saw a dramatic difference or d- dramatic decrease in skin cancers in the group that the sunscreen?
3: I can't give you the citation, and I've only read secondhand accounts right. because you know it's it's not something that I, I've read about recently. Right. Um, because now we test sunscreens based on how much ultraviolet does it block right. Does it ultra, does it block ultraviolet a or b there's different kinds of ultraviolet so i can't go back to the original studies that were done you know 30 years right. ago comparing two groups of people but i think it would be unethical to do a prospective study or how could you even no, do, you it? You do? know you wouldn't do prospective you right.
2: would although you could probably find plenty of people that don't want to wear sunscreen yeah. but you would, why not look backwards and say, here's a thousand people that yeah, use. that. That's, I'm sure
3: that's been done. I cannot give you the citation, right. but I'm positive You're that that's been done. You're almost positive yes. that you've seen yes. that study. People who use sunscreen, now there is something, there is some contradictory evidence, and that is that there is a theory that sometimes those studies are inconclusive and it doesn't show helpfulness for sunscreen, but it's theorized that the reason for that is, there's two, re- two possible reasons. Right. The first is, you don't, nobody puts on sunscreen properly, like hardly anyone. Right. You're supposed to use like a shot glass on your face practically. Right. I mean, it's supposed to be thick, right. you know, and uh, um, nobody uses it properly. So you take your SPF 50 and you put it on the way Harry or Joe puts it on, on his way to the beach in New Jersey, and it's not gonna be anywhere near SPF 50. So that's the first problem. The second problem is people say, hey, I'm wearing sunscreen. I can go to the beach for seven hours instead of two hours. That's the other problem. Right. So we know that ultraviolet light causes skin cancer. We know that sunscreens reduce ultraviolet light. So it, re- so it definitely reduces gonna, the risk of skin cancer.
2: I'm gonna look up the study because I don't use sunscreen. So I gotta find out if that's true. Awesome. All right, well, I guess we're gonna wrap up. Alan needs to go back and start studying for his boards again. Very sad. Dr. Alan and uh, hopefully after your boards, we'll be able to do another podcast with you and maybe uh, talk about more specific topics. Forget that, we're partying after the boards. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll (laughs) we'll bring the podcast to the bar.
0: There you go. Well, we'd like to thank Dr. Rosenbach for taking us behind the scenes at his dermatology practice and giving us some insight into how dermatologists make treatment decisions for their patients. And most importantly, thanks for making sure we put our sunscreen on correctly.
1: All right, thanks for listening to our podcast where we believe every patient is a doctor if they have evidence. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Check out our website, showmetheevidence.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter name is SMTEvidence. And we'll release topics for different podcasts via Twitter, so follow us there. And also let us know if you have any topics that you'd like us to cover, and we'll, we'll take requests and look forward to next time.